Amen. Now turn with me tonight in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. I'm going to read Revelation chapter 4 together. Revelation chapter 4. It's 11 verses. Let's hear the word of God. Reading, of course, from the authorized version. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, and sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats... I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had in their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And they were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf, and the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 11. And we know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now, my text this evening is taken from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And I want us to think of the words, And behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now, lately, I have been thinking about the God of heaven. Daniel was told, but there's a God in heaven. 
when Rosie and I were up in Port Stewart for those number of days and were walking up and down the beach, which is two miles long and two miles back again. That's four miles every time. It's only wonder I looked tired and um, I had to get much coffee to sustain me. But when we were on that beach and strand and then down in the white rocks, I was thinking even of Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth showeth forth his hand. They were lovely sunny weather and a gentle breeze from the sea. And I was thinking of the sand and the sea and thinking of the sky. And then last Sabbath morning, Rosie and I were in Coleraine Congregational Church. We were revisiting old friends. And I know that the Reverend Jim Lyons was installed there recently as the preacher. I wasn't sure who was preaching or what the theme was. But he preached a great message on the theme of heaven. Very simple but sublime. And as I sat and listened, I was thinking of these words. Behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now, this amazing event took place in the life of the Apostle John. John was an old man now. Remember, he was the youngest of the disciples. The rest have died off. They have been martyred. It's AD 90. And John's a prisoner. He's in exile. He's in this place called the Isle of Patmos. Now think of John there. John's there alone. The noise of the sea. Maybe there's a bit of a beach. Sand. Maybe there's, there's a few trees and shrubs or a few seagulls. And I wonder if John was walking along the beach and felt my days of usefulness are over. My days of serving the Lord have come and gone. They're they're, they're coming to an end. There's nothing more I can do from the Lord. There's nothing more I can give. I'm an old man now. And isn't it wonderful to discover that the Lord had not finished with his ancient servant. And if you're an ancient person, don't give up. Because the Lord can use you and use you in a wonderful way. Think of what John told us there in Revelation 1, verse 9. He said this, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 10, I was in the spirit in the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Do you know that John that day in the Isle of Patmos had a worship service? He met with the Lord, and the Lord wonderfully met with him and spoke with him and gave him the most wonderful revelation. It's not what we read in John 1, or, or Revelation 1 and 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified by his angel unto his servant John. Now, after giving John a, a message for each of the seven churches in Asia, these are seven literal churches, by the way, historical churches, and yet that message that was historical and relevant to them at that hour of giving was also very prophetical and gives us an insight into the history of the church down the ages. 
Now, now after this, what do we read? Look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now think of the following, because this is what I thought on Sunday morning week ago. The place called heaven. Underline the word, a door was opened in heaven. Now the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 2 The third heaven In Genesis 1 and 1 we read In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth But there's 127 references in the Bible That speaks of the heavens Plural And here's John, and he's writing about the third heaven. Now let me explain for the children that when the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God and the earth showeth forth his handiwork, think of the the aerial heavens. That's the sky. That's what we look up and can see. That's the place where the birds fly or the place where the aeroplanes fly. That's what we call the aerial heavens. And of course, if the sky is gray and dark and gloomy, you can discern, well, it's going to rain or there's going to be a storm. But then the Bible speaks about not just the aerial heavens, but what we call the planetary heavens or or outer space. In Genesis 2, 1 to 4, we read... um, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. You've got to think of the sun, the moon, the stars, the the outer galaxies. These two were all made by God. He spoke them into existence. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and in the verse uh, 3, we read these words, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And Job made this statement, Who alone spreadeth out the heavens and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Solomon said, The Lord by wisdom hath founded the earth, by understanding hath he established the heavens. And again he says in Proverbs 8 and 27, When he prepared the heavens, I was there. And of course, it's a reference to wisdom. And Christ, remember, is the wisdom of God. So when you read the word heaven in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, where is it referring to? Is it referring to the aerial heavens or the planetary heavens? Or is it referring to the third heavens? You see, this is where Bible interpretation comes in. This is where being a good student and learning how to execute The scriptures is very uh, apt and applicable. Whenever the Bible says, after this I looked and behold a door was opened in heaven, I want you to think of the third heaven. That's the place where God dwells. That's the place where the Shekinah glory is manifested. Now notice also, he says, behold a door was opened in heaven. And you see, there's the door of revelation. Because this door was opened so that God could reveal and teach John 
things that John could not know, things that would not be known otherwise apart from divine revelation. And what revelation was John to get through this open door? He was going to get a revelation of the transplendent glory of the living and the true God. And that revelation of the transcendent glory of the living and true God was going to impact upon John's heart and upon John's life for the rest of his life. I'll tell you something else. It was also a door of communication. <coughs> because God opened the door to speak to men. You think of the first gospel promise. That takes us back to Genesis. Genesis 3 and verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We can say, God has spoken. God has opened the door of heaven to communicate a message to man. It was Ehud that said, I have a message from God for thee. And you think of the fulfillment of that promise. Genesis 3 and 15. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that are under the law. John 3 and 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Doesn't John 6 and 37 say, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me and I will in no wise cast out. You see, God not only has spoken, but God is still speaking and speaking through his word. It's also a door of jubilation. Turn over there to Psalm 27, sorry, Psalm 24, and read with me in the verse 7. Here's the Lord Jesus. He's returning to heaven after the victory of the cross and the victory of his resurrection. Listen to these words, Psalm 24 and 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. And it repeats it in verse 9 and in verse 10. For the King of glory to enter in, the door has to be open. It's a door of jubilation. Here's the Lord Jesus, the one who was born for sinners, lived for sinners, died for sinners, rose again for sinners from the dead. And there's a door opened in a jubilant fashion to receive him as victor, receiving the, the king, strong, mighty in battle, back home again. Victory over sin and Satan, death in the grave, over the law. We could even say something else. It's a door of supplication. The door in heaven is open to hear the cry of individuals in prayer. Think of our prayers heard in heaven. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Have you ever prayed like that? The cry of repentance. The penitent sinner who pleads for mercy is heard in heaven. Peter prayed, Lord, save me, I perish. Uh, remember the dying thief Lord remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom And not only the prayer Which is a cry of repentance for mercy and salvation But every other prayer And your prayers have been received Through that open door They're not forgotten, they're not wasted They have been placed on the golden censer And they're before the throne of God Revelation chapter 8 and verse 4 So in this place where God dwells, 
There's a door of revelation that's open. God is revealing himself. He's communicating his truth. This door stands a, 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 a jubilant testimony to victory. And God hears prayer through this door. There's the place called heaven. Very quickly and secondly, I want you to think of the particular characteristic of heaven. You see, this is what I was really getting at as I listened to the Reverend Lyons preaching. I'm a preacher and I have difficulty listening because I'm always thinking of something else. And I was asking myself, well, what is heaven like? Now, you see, when we think of what is heaven, if I asked you tonight, you would say, well, it's a place of many mansions. And it is. Not rooms, by the way, mansions. I, I hate the NIV translation of John 14. You could say, well, there's streets of gold there. Lovely to walk down them. It's lovely to walk in a city and a street that you've never walked in before. But you, you think also of the tree of life being there, the pearly gates, the walls, the foundations. We could think about who's in heaven, the people, loved ones that have died and gone home to be with the Lord, absent from the body and present with the Lord. You get a surprise in heaven over some people who are not there. But I want to tell you, above and beyond all these realities, these things that I've mentioned, that's not what caught John's attention. That's not what even thrilled his heart. That's not what filled his soul with happiness and delight. That's not what he set his mind on. Now, these things are true. These things are real. These things are in heaven. But there's so much more to heaven than that. Isn't it wise and good to get your mind on things eternal? Isn't it wise and good to fix your heart and mind on the invisible world and the world to come? You see, John wasn't just taken up with these things that I've mentioned about heaven. He wanted the very happiness of heaven to fill his soul. He yearned to be filled with a heavenly obsession of heaven. He wanted to get to the heart and the core of what heaven is like. In my study there, I've got two or three volumes of a man called Jonathan Edwards. He was a young man, just like I once was, and Ryan, of course, is just a little bit older. Jonathan Edwards became a brilliant scholar, a tremendous preacher, saw revival, a fantastic theologian. And you know, as a young man at 18, he was determined to set his gaze, not on the things that are in heaven, namely the mansions and the tree of life and the pearly gates and the streets of gold. But he determined to set his gaze on the glorious God of heaven. He knew that these things that I've mentioned are in heaven, but that's not what makes heaven heaven. Here's the apex of it all. Here's what revolutionized his life. He came into contact with the awful, transcendent, living and true God. And I'm quoting his own words. The awful, transcendent, living and true God. In other words, he saw the glory of God on display. He didn't be taken up with the company in heaven or the communion in heaven or the climax of heaven. But he was taken up with the God-centeredness of heaven. And that's exactly what John saw. Look at our text. John 4, Revelation 1 verse 4. Sorry, Revelation 4 verse 1. Behold, a door was open in heaven. 
And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me that said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Uh, let me tell you very quickly, just bear with me, five things that John saw. He saw the sovereignty of God. A throne was set in heaven. You see, see this throne, mentioned about 40 times in Revelation, it represents the absolute sovereign government of God. God rules. Hallelujah. God reigns. And he reigns from heaven. And he reigns absolutely sovereignly. And he rules over the entire universe. And he rules over all time. And all history. History is the unfolding of God's story. He rules over all life. He rules over man and beast. He rules over all destiny. He rules over all movements. He, he rules over all events. There's a throne in heaven. Wasn't that good news for John? AD 90, first century. The whole of the known world's in chaos. The Roman emperor is on the throne. The Roman empire is expanding. Extending and exerting its influence. The church at Ephesus, it's left its first love. The church at Sardis that he wrote to, it had a name to live, but was dead. The church at Ephesus, well, it was lukewarm and Christ said he would spew them out of his mouth. The rest of the apostles are dead. They've been martyred. John's the last. Here he is imprisoned in this island. Things are hard. Things are difficult. Things are dark and bleak. There's no hope. What about the future? Maybe John in his mind was ready to give up. Maybe he felt it was useless. Maybe he felt it's best that I quit. But we read of John, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And the, John is given this vision in the darkest hour of human history. Remember, there's a throne in heaven. I want to tell you, notice this throne's occupied. It says... And one sat on the throne. You see, there is a God in heaven who sits on the throne and who sovereignly and perfectly and daily and authoritatively rules and reigns this universe, surveying and scrutinizing every detail, every thought, every word, every event in the life of individuals. Remember what Daniel tells us there in Daniel 4 and verse 35. In the book of Daniel 4 and 35. Listen to these words. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? The psalmist tells us there in Psalm 115 and in the verse 3. Listen to these words. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath placed. Not only is the throne occupied, tell you something else, it's unmovable. Notice this wee word, set. It says a throne was set in heaven. You see, the emperors of Rome, they would come and go. There was a day when Caesar ceased to be. But God's throne is permanent. It's fixed, it's unmovable, it's unfazed by human history, history and human events. In fact, it towers over every event, every human being. 
the throne of God. The living and the true God sits in that throne and has ruled from ages past and will rule from age to come. From everlasting, Moses prayed, to everlasting, thy art God. He's not waiting to reign. It's not that he'll reign when he comes at the second coming. He's reigning now. I was reading a billboard. I can't remember where it was. I was driving past it. It caught my eye. And it said this, the sun rises and the Lord reigns. I thought, well, well, that's tremendous. He doesn't need permission to reign and rule. Here's John upon entering heaven. And he's given a vision of the God-centeredness of heaven. And, and he sees not only the throne of God, but God in the throne. And this God is sovereign over all. Very quickly, he sees the splendor of God. If you think of verse 3, And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, and sight like unto an emerald. You see, what's he describing here? He's describing the royal majesty an absolute splendor of God. Two precious stones are mentioned, jasper and, and sardine stone. He's using them like metaphors. He's not saying God is a stone. He's saying God is like a jasper stone. It's a reference, of course, to remind us that God's essential glory cannot be fully communicated. God dwells in light unapproachable. But these stones portray something of the essential and eternal, splendid glory of God. The awful holiness and the absolute majesty of the glory of God. It magnifies the radiant splendor of his being. Jasper, it's clear as crystal, like a gem. Jasper portrays the absolute purity and brilliance of God's essential glory. Jasper is clear. It reflects the light. Well, God is light. An absolute holy God who hates sin, who reveals and unmasks the darkness because the darkness can't comprehend the light. Notice the reference to Sardis. That's interesting. Do you know a Sardis stone is blood red? Does that not connect it with redemption? See, with God is plenty as redemption. He's a God of wrath, of holy justice, a God who hates sin, and yet a God of infinite grace, love, and mercy. A God who judges sin, yes, but a God who's provided a great plan and scheme of redemption through his Son, Jesus Christ. Think of the reference to the rainbow. It says, and there was a rainbow round about the throne. Not half a rainbow, but a full rainbow. In sight like unto an emerald. Think of the full circle. Like an emerald. In other words, it's not a drab place. It's not a dull place. It's a place of brilliant light. Light that is like a dazzling glory of the galaxies. In chapter 4 and 4, we read, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had in their heads crowns of gold. Here's 24 lesser thrones. 24 elders were seated in these thrones. And they had delegated authority. You see, central authority resides at the throne of God. But he delegated authority to help rule uh, to those that are redeemed. 12 elders representing the Old Testament. 12 representing the New Testament. But at the heart of it, you've got the centrality and the absolute authority of God's throne. Elders, they're just carrying out the will of God. Sitting 
It speaks of their union with the God of heaven through our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us they're clothed in white raiment. In other words, these men are blood washed. These men have been clothed in white. They have imputed righteousness placed upon them. The crowns of gold that were given to them were given for faithful service. What a scene! Splendor of God. Very quickly, he sees the severity of God. What proceeds from the throne? Look with me at verse 5. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Is this not a picture? And I, I have to be very careful I don't get saved. I was thinking of what took place in Sinai when God spoke and all the people became fearful and troubled. When God spoke as law, there was thunders, there was lightnings, there was smoke. You see, as I thought of this, I, I, I thought of a, a picture in my mind of a, of a brewing storm in heaven. If the clouds get very dark and heavy and it gets very sticky and warm, well, you're thinking of a storm coming, thunder and lightning storm. But you think of the picture here of a, of a brewing storm in heaven and it's about to birth forth. And you've got flash of lightning and you've peals of thunder. Uh, it's a picture of the uh, building up of a, 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 a dam like divine wrath against a Christ rejecting world. You see, remember, our God is holy. He can't look on sin with approval. He hates sin. He's angry with the wicked every day. He's an infinite holy God. And remember what. Um, Paul has already taught us there in the book of Romans in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18 listen to these words Romans 1 and 18 for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven see there's the lightning there's the thunder against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness there's a big storm brewing and it's going to be unleashed on this earth it's going to be released unto a wicked world. And they're going to experience the full fury of God. These seven lamps of burning fire are the seven spirits of God. Of course, there's only one Holy Spirit, but these seven spirits, uh, it speaks of the fullness of the Spirit, the perfection of the Spirit. Spirit manifests itself in uh, a sevenfold fruitful way. Every sin every thought, every deed that has been committed by every human being that dies in their sins unrepentant without Christ will be punished by this holy God. You see, he never authorized sin. He, he doesn't condone sin. He doesn't encourage sin. Man in rebellion to God will be judged. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Very quickly, he sees the sinlessness of God. Revelation 4 and 6, the sea of glass like a crystal. You've got four beasts here. They've got eyes behind and before. What are they doing? They're protecting the throne. They're guardians, just like they were in Eden. They're, they're, they're in constant surveillance, eyes everywhere in every direction. One was like a lion, which speaks of strength. Another was like a calf, which speaks of a, a sacrificial, a true spirit. One was like a man who is smart and wise, a man in his strength. One is like an eagle, 
swift and eager to carry out the will of God. And these beasts have six wings, two to cover their face because they're unworthy to look in the throne of God, two to cover their body because they're unworthy to serve him. They're only unprofitable beasts. Two to fly, and what do they cry out? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You see, holiness is singled out. Here's the sum of who God is. The Alpha, the Omega of his perfection. The majestic, sinless, blameless God. The Bible teaches that none that defileth shall enter in. He's of infinite, pure in his character. The perfection of his attributes is to do with his holiness. Can you see the supremacy of God here? Verses 9 through to 11. Every eye, every knee, every tongue, every life, beholding them in heaven, represented by these four and twenty elders, falling down before him. And what are they saying? Look at verse 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Let me just pause there for a moment. I want you to think of a Roman general. And he's been in some country, invaded it, and he's won. And he's captured every city and town and village. And he's killed a whole lot of people. And he's got a whole lot of goods to return to Rome. Precious stones, gold, and, and all the rest. He's got scores and scores of men and women and young people as spoils of war. And they're his slaves. And they're going to be sold at Rome. And he, he, he's on a victory parade right back to Rome. Now what they do when they get to Rome... The people line the streets, they cheer the general, and his spoils come in behind him. It's called a triumphant procession. And they get to Caesar's palace. And this is what he says to Caesar when Caesar comes out to greet him. He says, worthy art thou, Caesar. Now, here's, here's the scene in heaven. Thou art worthy, O Lord. It's a triumphant cry. It's a triumphant possession. The redeemed of the Lord are represented. As they cry, worthy to God. Now, now that's what John saw. The God-centeredness of heaven. And it overwhelmed him. He was overwhelmed with the sovereignty of God. He, he, he was overwhelmed with the splendor of God. He was overwhelmed with the severity, the sinlessness, and the supremacy of God. Thou art worthy. And if we could get sight of that, then that is the heart and happiness of heaven. One final thing, our time is gone. I want you to think of the people called to heaven. If you go back to our text, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, Where if a trumpet talking with me which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Here's an invitation. Come up hither. And God would say that to every sinner. What is your life, sinner? Your life that's dependent on God. Your life that's accountable to him. He would say the same to every backslider tonight. Who, who professed the name of the Lord and once walked well with Christ. And here's a question. Where will you be five minutes after you die? What's the way into heaven? To heed the call to come up hither. To, to accept the invite. Reverend Jim Lyons told a story about a great opera singer who was invited to perform at a, a royal wedding for a prince and a princess. She had got the invitation. The day come to go to the church in Italy and celebrate the wedding, and they did that. 
And then the reception was taking place. There were thousands of guests there, and there was a man at the top of the stairs where they were having the reception. He had a big book, and he had the names of everybody in the book. He was ticking them off. So if it was David McLaughlin, name, David McLaughlin, Rosemary McLaughlin, yes, your name's in the book. Go you into the wedding feast. But this opera singer arrived at the top of the stairs to give the man her name. And her name wasn't in the book. And the man told her, I don't care if your name's not in this book. You cannot come into the wedding feast. And isn't that what the Bible teaches? None that defile shall enter in. Whosoever's name was not written in the Lamb's book of life was cast out and cast away from the very presence of God. Here's the people called to heaven. Come up hither. Is your name in the book? Have you got the assurance that you're trusting in Christ? Where will you be five minutes after you die? Will you be in heaven with Christ, which is far better? And will you behold the God-centeredness of that place? I trust that you will. Next week, we're going to look a little bit when a person dies and enters heaven. And we're going to think about that in the will of God.